we're getting ready to start our new series called Hard to Believe, and we're going to examine uh, a lot of information about the Bible, about Jesus. Where did the Bi- Today, we're going to focus on the Bible. Where did it come from? How did we get it? And I came across this video. It's about five minutes. I think it does more in five minutes with graphs and pictures than I probably could do in 25 minutes of speaking. So would you turn your attention to the screen, please? The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling. And they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand-year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually, they were conquered by the Babylonians, who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this Second Temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff, was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. 
And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years. And from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical Books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. All right, well, hopefully that sheds some light on what the Bible is and kind of how we got it. Um, There won't be a quiz after today. All right, so everybody can just relax. Uh, And I told my wife, I said, man, I really geek out on this stuff. And so it's not hard for me to get excited. But you're going to want to take notes. If you have the Bible app, you can follow along in our live event, and you can take notes there as well. If we're going to think about this book, the Bible, if it's going to be trustworthy and accurate and everything that Christianity claims to be, there are some things that we have to skeptically and analytically look at. And those three things are this. One, how close to the original events were the original copies written? In other words, how close to the historical event of Jesus or the historical spreading of the gospel in the book of Acts, how close was it to the original event? That's important, right? Because I am learning that the older I get, the more my memory fails. (laughs) Anybody with me on that, right? And so you have to start recording fairly close to the original event to ensure that it's accurate. The second question we have to skeptically look at is this. How do we know what it says? How do we know that what we read is exactly what they wrote? Because you're talking about documents that are 1,500 to almost 2,000 years old, right? And it's not like they had a server sitting in a mountain behind five walls of concrete protected. They were writing on papyrus with ink, right? And over thousands of years, that ink and stuff, we'll get more into that, that's going to disappear. But the third question then you have to ask is, are these events supported historically, right? This is stuff that you're not going to get. Don't, some of you, as soon as I said historically, you started checking out. All right, check back in. (laughs) Check back in with me, all right? But is it supported historically? Archaeology, culturally, do we find evidence of this that supports it? Or do we find evidence that totally says that's not accurate, right? And so let's look at the first question. 
how close to the original events were these things recorded, right? If they were recorded, if they were recorded, you know, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, now all of a sudden we start getting into to issues. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the Bible, which is an ancient manuscript document, and we're going to compare it to other ancient classical culture documents, and we'll compare them, okay? So let's start with Homer. How many of you have heard of Homer, right? How many of you have called a referee a Homer? My hand's up. I don't care. I'll admit it, right? Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, history of the Greek Empire, okay? Well, Homer was written, here, this is up here. Homer was written about 500 years after the events took place. The Iliad and the Odyssey were written about 500 years after the events took place. Herodotus, Demosthenes, Pliny the Elder, and Caesar. These are all historical documents. The archaeologists, professors, etc. say, yes, this is, these are accurate documents historically. This is how far. Look, Caesar, the, annual, the annals of Caesar was written a thousand years after, after the events took place. Pliny the Elder, 750 years. But now we get to the New Testament they record the events within 25 years after the event happens. Think about this. Think about that for a minute. Within 25 years, they start recording what Jesus said, what Jesus did, etc. How accurate do you think that is compared to Iliad and the Odyssey or the Annals of Cena or Pliny the Elder, Herodotus? Right? I'm telling you, I geek out on this stuff. <laughs> All right? How accurate do you think that is to the events actually occurring? Well, let me ask you this. These are copies, right? These aren't the originals. These are the copies. They started making copies of the originals. They started making copies of the original documents within 25 years, right? Let me ask you something. If you were to pick up a book 25 years ago is 1993. Ha, thought I was going to mess up, didn't you? 25 years ago, if you were to go pick up a book, if you were to go pick up a book from 1993, and you wanted to start handwriting and copying it, do you think the book could, would be intact? Think it'd be there? Oh, I know, because I've already seen textbooks from 1993, right? From school. Some schools still got textbooks from 1993, right? And it's intact. If you want to start making copies of Demosthenes after 1,400 years, do you think it'd all be intact? Probably not, right? Probably, probably not. In fact, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark is recorded within three years of Jesus' ascension. From three years that Jesus met his disciples and said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, I'm going away. Within three years, Mark writes his gospel. It's going to be accurate, right? I mean, let me ask you something about your child from three years ago. And you're going to give me what you can recall. It's probably going to be pretty accurate than if I come back 50 years from now and ask you what happened, Right? It's going to be pretty accurate. So when you pick up, when you pick up the New Testament or when you pick up the Bible, you are reading something that is extremely accurate and recorded within 25 years in the Gospel of Mark within three years of the events happening. Like, boom. Now, again, keep in mind, we're talking about historically. So you're talking thousands and thousands of years, as you can see from, oh, my goodness, where'd she come from? Right? The, the, other, the other ones in that graph. Um, and so here's what I want this to mean to you. You're like, okay, well, how does that affect my life? Here's what this means. This means this, that no matter what you're going through, whatever event in your life, God is close. Okay? God is right 
there. God is with you in it. Don't, don't just look at this and go, okay, that's a bunch of nice data and whatever. I want this to mean to you that God is right there with you in that moment, in that event. Whether you're going through a difficult time or a happy time. Whether it's your birthday and everybody's reminding you that you're one year closer to heaven. Or whether it's... That was a joke, right? Or whether, or whether it's a bad day. God says, I'm right there. I'm not some 1,400 years away. I'm not out there somewhere. I'm with you in the situation. So, so the Bible, the New Testament, begins to get copied. The originals are written, and then the copies begin to get copied by hand, right? Because they don't have Xerox scanners, printers, right? They start copying them by hand within 25 years, okay? Now, the second question that we have to ask ourselves is this. How do we know that our Bible, this thing we call the Bible, this, especially this thing we call the New Testament, about Jesus in the early church, how do we know that it's accurate? We have all the, right? How do we know, how do we know that it says what it says? When you read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How do we know that really says that if these documents are that old? Because doesn't, you know, the ink begins to fade, the weather, the dust, all of it begins to take its wear and tear and toll on these documents. So how do we know that it really says what it says. Well, there again, you got to go back to the copies that we do have. Whether it's Pliny the Elder, the Annals of Caesar, Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey, the other historical writings, you have to go back to what you have. And you know nothing other than what you have, right? So, to know the accurate, how do we know that these books of ancient history really say what they say? Right? How do we know, um, and I don't mean historical, oh, you already put it up. All right, I don't mean historical from the events. I mean simply how do we know that the word the is there and the word festival is there? Well, if you look at Homer, we have 643 copies of Homer. We have seven copies of Pliny the Elder, ten of Caesar, of the New Testament. We have 5,686 original copies of the New Testament 5,686 copies within 25 years of the events happening. Now, here's the, here's the miracle, right? As if that's not crazy. Because nobody questions whether Homer, Herodias, Demosthenes, Pliny, or Caesar are historical events. Nobody questions that. Nobody says, I don't know if the Iliad and, and the history of the Greek Empire really happened. Nobody questions that. But when it comes down to here, suddenly we start questioning everything, and yet we have 5,686 copies of it, and we know exactly what it says. There are holes in all of those other documents. There are no holes here, because this is all within 25 years of the events happening. Just let, just let that sink in for a minute, right? Now, why? Right? Why does this matter? Well, before I get there, I want to share something else with you that's pretty cool. So we have this, and we're like, you know, and uh, experts of people who study ancient materials, ancient documents, they're, you know, they're like, man, we've got so many copies. We know what this thing says. We know the word the should be right there, et cetera, right? So in 1947, though, something interesting happens, and it's actually, when it comes to archaeology, and I don't mean like Indiana Jones archaeology. I mean like real archaeology, all right? Nobody's like got a bullwhip and swinging over stuff, but... 
There was in the Middle East in 1947 a shepherd boy. He's about 13 years old. Okay, he's, and we don't have the full details of, of how he did this, but he was taking his sheep up this cliff. And in this cliff were, was a, uh, a network of caves, right? So as a 13-year-old boy, he's driving his sheep along, and he picks up a rock, and he just throws it. So the story goes. He throws a rock into the cave, and he hears something shatter, like, Tsh! He's like, what was that? 1947. So he goes in to the cave, and he finds pottery, pottery from, from thousands. This, again, this is 1947. This is just after World War II. He shatters pottery in these caves. He's like, what in the world? And so he goes in there and he looks. And he finds scrolls that are thousands of years old. The scrolls now are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were 941 scrolls in this cave. Of the 941 scrolls, 240 of them were found in the Bible. Now we got a problem because these scrolls are ancient. What do we do if Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, what do we do if we get to reading these and they don't line up with the Bible? We have a problem. The Dead Sea Scrolls are word for word what was already the Bible in 1947. It just reaffirmed the 5,686 you guys are like, who's running the slides today? <laughs> All right. So the Dead Sea, <laughs> just wait for my cue, man. Oh, he's hiding behind the desk now. All right. Listen, so, so in 1947, we find 941 scrolls. 200 and some of them are Bible, found in the Bible, and they are word for word exactly what we have in here. We know that the word the belongs right there. Now, how do we know Right? How do we know that? Well, let's use John 3.16 for an example. Okay? So let's say, let's say we have a scroll. Right? Let's say we have a scroll, and it says, For God so loved the world. But it's missing the O. Well, how are we going to know what that's supposed to be? Well, guess what? We have 5,685 other copies, and we can fill it in. Right? It's kind of like, like auto-spell in your texting but it just kind of automatically fills it in. We know that that should have been God because we've got so many other copies of it. But if you look at Pliny the Elder, if you only have seven copies of an ancient document, how are you going to know? God said, I want you to know what I had to say about you. And so I will ensure, I will ensure beyond all other ancient documents that you get what I want you to get. And he gives us so many copies. So how do I know, let's say here like the third one, or God so loved the world. Well, how do I know what that says? Well, I've got so many other copies that have F right there. I know that. I know that's the word for. Because over time, things just kind of fade. Things kind of disappear. Right? That's why it matters that we have so many copies of the New Testament that are recorded within 25 years of the actual event. 5,686 copies within 25 years of the events. And not one of them is off. Now, there are some differences. Let me give you a difference. Okay, like Galilee, the region of Galilee wasn't always called Galilee. It was called, and I went blank, but it was called something else, right? But depending on the regions that you were from, Galilee wouldn't be called Galilee. 
you might call it something else. It's no different than when you say, hey, I'm going into Anderson to pick something up, or you say, hey, I'm going into A-Town to pick something up. You would give it a different name. Same thing here. Same thing in these scrolls. And what people that want to argue the Bible say, well, see, it's not the same. But if I'm Mark, and I'm from this region, and I'm Matthew, and I'm from that region, I might call that same region a different name, depending on where I'm from. And so when we start putting all of these scrolls together, we're like, yep, that's that, that's that, that's that, that's that. Are there discrepancies? Yes. But the discrepancies don't influence the end result. Are there missing things in those scrolls? Yes. But the thing is, we got so many copies of it, we know what it says because we can fill in we can fill in the blanks. Frederick Kenyon, he's an ancient manuscript expert. He said this. He says, It cannot be true, too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain, especially in the case of the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament is so large, it is practically certain that the true reading of every passage is preserved. This can, uh, this can be said of no other ancient book in the world. So think about this. Let this soak in. And let this, hopefully, this inspires your faith. Hopefully you get excited about this. Like when I read the Bible, I'm reading exactly what Paul wrote. There is no guesswork. I'm reading exactly what Mark and Luke wrote. There's no guesswork here. Because we have so many stinking copies, we know exactly what they said. When we read the New Testament, we are reading the exact original text that others throughout history have read. You are reading, when you read this, you're reading the exact same thing that inspired St. Nicholas. When you read this, you're reading the exact same thing that inspired St. Patrick. You're reading the exact same thing that inspired John Wesley and Martin Luther and Billy Graham. You're reading the exact same words they read. Even if they lived 15, 17, nearly 2,000 years ago, you're still reading the exact words that inspired them. It's the same. And you read it, and it inspires and speaks to you. How is that not God pulling things together and saying, I want to inspire you to live a life for me? No other religious book can make such a strong claim statistically and in data. Let me give you two examples. Okay, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, so I apologize in advance if I, if I, if I mispronounce, but the... the Mahabharata of Hinduism, the holy book of Hinduism. How do we know that the holy book of Hinduism says exactly what it says? Well, professionals of ancient manuscripts go through the exact same process. The holy book of Hinduism is the closest religious book in accuracy to the Bible. When I say accuracy, I mean we know what it says, not historically, archaeologically. We'll get to that in a second. But Hinduism's book is at best, at best, 85% accurate. They don't have nearly as many copies. They don't have nearly as, there's holes all over the place. It's at best 85% accurate knowing what what it really was meant to say. How about the Quran? Islam, the Quran. This might blow you away. There is no original, there is no copy of the Quran that exists. In fact, Muhammad himself could not read or write. 
He was illiterate. And so what he would do is he would travel, and then he would issue edicts, and he would talk. He'd say, you know, God's speaking through me, and God is saying. And then people would find whatever is next to them, and they would start writing things down. And so we have portions of the Quran written on a bull's rib cage on bones. We have portions of the Quran in another region of the world written down uh, on extremely large leaves that were written down on leaves. We have portions of the Quran all over the place because he would travel and speak and then people would just write it down. And it wasn't until four generations later that the leader of Islam said, we need to get these holy writings from Muhammad. And so he traveled around and said, we need these. And four generations later, began to try to pull these things together off of ribcage bones and leaves, etc. There is no original copy of the Quran. It doesn't exist. 5,686, we know what this thing says. And it's said it for thousands and thousands of years, right? So, we know what it says. The copies were written so close to the actual events, they can't be mistaken. Now we have to say, of the Bible, is it historically accurate? Does it line up with what we find in archaeology? Does archaeology, our understanding of cultures, does it line up, or is it a farce? Now, are the things written in this actually true? Right? Okay, good. I know what it says, because I have so many copies of it, I know exactly what it says. Now, is it true? Well, Let's just go through, I'm just going to give you four examples. I could, I could spend days in archaeology and other writings outside of the Bible that reaffirm the Bible. And next week when we talk about the, the historicity, was Jesus actually historically real? Do we have documents outside of the Bible that talk about Jesus and are as reliable? Yes, we do. We're going to go through some of those next week. But, so, are things exactly as the Bible describes? We know several years ago, Several years ago, but by several, I mean like 50, 60 years ago, or even longer, we have found Jericho. The walls of Jericho are crushed. When they would build a a, a city, they would defend it with walls. The walls of Jericho are crushed. They literally are like, it's almost like one archaeologist described it, it's almost as if they were pushed directly into the ground. You read the book of Joshua, and it says that they came, the walls came down like, and yet archaeology says it's almost as if someone pushed them straight into the ground, and they toppled over and bricks fell out. And so we found Jericho, we found the walls of Jericho, it's completely crushed, it fell exactly as described in the Bible. They outlined it with chalk, they've outlined it with rope, and they've done all these scientific, you know, all this stuff, the... um, Measuring, see how old the dirt is. What else have we got? Um, King David. King David is mentioned in, a st- in present-day Iraq, outside of the Bible. They have found a pillar, a rock pillar, that records the annals of David as recorded, not by Israel, but by the peoples living in Iraq, in Babylon. It's recorded, outside of the Bible, these pillars Right, And so those were found in 1993. Peter's house. We found Peter's house. We know where he lived. There was evidence that he had a wife. Bible says that. Evidence that he had children. Bible says that. We found it. In 1993, we found Peter's house. 
And when I say we, I don't mean Christian archaeologists. I mean secular archaeologists. Said this is Peter's house. We know that because of what's inscribed on the floor and etc. All right. How about this? James, the stepbrother of Jesus. James, the stepbrother of Jesus, the author of the book of James, his ossuary containing his bones was found in 2002. And on the side of the box, it says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, found in 2002. 2004, the pool of Siloam, as recorded in John chapter 9, was found. And it is it was found exactly as the Bible describes, with the colonnades, with the number of steps leading down. Everything's exactly as the Bible describes. The exact number of columns, number of steps, all of it. It's all right there. So now what we have to start asking ourselves, and like I said, I'm going to stop there. I could go on and on and on for days and days and days of stuff that has been found that through archaeology and other findings that support the Bible as true. Now, some of you ask me, well, what do you, how do you put your sermon together? One of my top questions when I put a sermon together is, so what? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Right? What, what, does, that, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to let the Bible answer that question. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have Hope. Why did God do all of this? Why did God put all of this in place? And why are we discovering all of these things? Why? So that you and I can have hope and rest assured that our faith is solid, that our faith is grounded, that we know that we know that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is real, that he is the Savior of the world, that we have hope beyond measure, that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, we can rely on the accuracy and the reliability of Scripture to say, I believe this beyond a shadow of a doubt. That I can go into my job tomorrow and go, no, 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 I know what I believe is real. I believe that it's true. I believe that it's accurate. And what does he say? He says, this Bible is for instruction, he says, the Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, it's for instruction. Yeah, both for our physical world, but also for our spirit. Right? And you know what? You can never endure a trial unless you have encouragement. And Paul says, I want your encouragement to be so grounded and so solid that you can endure any trial that comes your way. Our greatest encouragement doesn't come from our spouse or our kids. Our greatest encouragement comes from God himself. That his word has stood the test of time. It has stood scrutiny. It has... um, withstood people analyzing it. It should be a motivation to share our faith. It should be a motivation to say, I know what's in there and I know that it's accurate. I know it's real, right? But some might say, but Tyson, weren't the people that wrote the Bible biased? Weren't they biased? Well, you say, well, weren't the New Testament writers, weren't they Weren't they converts to Christianity, and so, and so they created this, and, and they got together, and they schemed this out? Because that's what a lot of people who oppose the Bible will say, right? Let me ask you something. Well, no, actually, let me say this. When somebody makes that statement, they're confusing non-neutrality with objectivity. Don't confuse non-neutrality with objectivity, okay? They're two different things. I can be biased and still be objective. Let me give you two examples. 
Let's say that you are very good friends with your family doctor. You play cards with your family doctor. You hang out. Maybe you grew up together. You're in elementary school together with your family doctor, right? Your family doctor has a very strong relationship with you and you with him or her. Now, let's say that you go to them in their office and they say, you know, I think you might have such and such disease. Does them liking you or even loving you and caring for you get in the way of their objectivity of the disease they think you might have? Because they're going to run MRIs and tests and draw blood. Is that going to prevent them from being objective? No, it's not. In fact, their passion for you might even cause them to dig further and dig deeper than if you were just, say, an average patient, right? And so I can be biased but still be objective. Let me give you a real-life example of this. Let's go back to the concentration camps and look at people who have come out of those concentration camps and written books. People like Dr. Victor, Victor Frankel or people like uh, Corey Ten Boom who survived concentration camps. Do you think they were biased about concentration camps? Yes. Were their works and their writings objective and true? Yes. Right? You can be biased and have an opinion and still be objective. So just because the writers of the New Testament were converts doesn't mean that what they wrote wasn't true or wasn't objective. Right? So here's some things to ponder. If you want to go down this road and say, well, the writers were Christians, they were converts, and, and they were biased, and so that got into the work of the New Testament. Let me ask you a few things. Why did they use the credibility of women for the most historic event in history? You say, Tyson, what are you talking about? In biblical culture, women were not even allowed to testify in court because they were considered to, okay, don't, don't throw tomatoes and stuff at me. They were considered too flighty, and you couldn't rely on the word of a woman. They weren't even allowed to testify in court under oath. So why would all of the Gospels record that women discovered Jesus had resurrected and it was women that spread the good news of Jesus Christ? And why would they choose women to be a witness in a culture that wouldn't even recognize women as witnesses in court? It's not going to support and spread your idea that you're trying to push out there because it's immediately going to get discredited. How about the second one? Well, they made it up. I love this. Well, they just made it up. Why? Why are you going to make up a story that's going to cause you to lose your job, threaten your life, threaten your kids, threaten your wife? Why? All these men lost their jobs. All of them but John died as martyrs and were killed. John is the only one that died a natural death. Why would you make up and stick to this if it's going to cost you literally everything? That makes no, well, they made it up. That makes no sense. Would anybody in this room make something up and push it forward? I, I wouldn't. Number three, if they made it up, why would they record their own failures and their own faults? I'm not. If I'm making up a story that I want to create followers, I'm going to make myself look like a hero, right? I'm not going to say, yeah, I denied Jesus three times. Yeah, I didn't believe him. Oh, in fact, at one point, Jesus even told me, Jesus even told me I was acting like Satan. <laughs> I'm not going to record that if I'm trying to push something and, and make this look good. Number four, and again, these are just four, in regards to the writers were biased. All of the writers 
None of them began as converts. None of them were converts. None of them were initially Christians. In fact, James, the stepbrother of Jesus, was completely skeptical of Jesus until he came back from the dead. The Bible says that when Jesus came back from the dead, he had 500 witnesses at one time. Over 500 witnesses saw him. Right? So as we get ready and close this up, as we get ready to wrap this up, if you look at Peter in regards to this, in regards to none of the, you know, none of the writers were converts, or I'm sorry, none of the writers were Christians at first, and then they converted to Christianity, right? Let's look at one. Let's look at Peter. The night of Jesus' crucifixion in front of about a handful of people or so, Peter literally denies Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Within three months, Peter stands up in front of thousands and thousands of people and says, he's the Messiah. Now, what in the world would cause one person who denied Jesus all night long within three months or less, stand up in front of thousands of people and say, no, he's the Messiah. Why would he change so quickly? makes no sense unless there is substantial truth to that claim. Last verse today, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Jesus Christ. He says, if you want to grow your faith and grow your belief in Jesus, He says, get into this word. Find your assured hope. Find what makes a Christian different than everybody else and begin to follow and live with Jesus. Live with Jesus. This morning, if you're here, and maybe maybe you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to invite you I want to invite you to consider what I said today. I want to invite you to come back next week, and we're going to specifically look at Jesus historically. I want to invite you just to begin to think about this stuff. Will you stand up this morning? If I can ask Aaron and Lori to come down here, and if I can ask... Steve and Bonnie to come down on this side. And as we close out in song, if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that we are to lay hands on you, to pray for you. And it says where two or three agree as touching anything, it'll be done for them. If it's in the will of the Father. Listen, I know this thing's accurate. I know it's right. And so if it says that when you come together in prayer, God will answer your prayer. It may not come when you want it. It may not be answered how you want it, but he will answer it. It's accurate. I want to invite you to come forward for prayer for whatever it might be this morning. This week, listen, this week, I want to encourage you, open this thing up. And if you, if you try to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation like a normal book, probably not going to work so well for you. I want to encourage you, if you open this book up and decide to start reading it, start with John. Start with John. Start with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and start there. Or maybe start with the book of Luke and then go into Acts. That's where you should start. It's like the video said, this isn't a book. This is a library with multiple ancient books in it. All put together by God himself, orchestrating through history so that we have this. And what you read is the same thing that St. Nicholas read and John Wesley read 
and St. Patrick read and Martin Luther read. Let it inspire you to do something great with your life this week. Be sure to sign up to help out at the park on Saturday. I love you. You guys have a great, great week.